Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I serve as one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. There is no darkness that can compare to the darkness that you'll find in a cave. Very few of us experience what it's like to be in a place that's truly dark. It's, as they say, pitch dark. Pitch as in black like pitch. Even when the lights are out in your bedroom, I suspect there's tiny lights all around the room, maybe a crack at the window where light creeps in and pushes back the darkness. I have the water heater light to guide me to the bathroom if I wake up in the middle of the night even. But a cave can show you what true darkness really is. When I was a young boy, I was in the Boy Scouts of America, and we would go on camping trips. And one of the trips we went to was to the famous cave in the state of Kentucky called Mammoth Cave. And we camped in the cave that night. We didn't just tour it. We slept in sleeping bags. And at night, they turned out all the lights in the cavern where we were. That is dark. I mean, it's a kind of darkness that's immobilizing. You try and move or walk, and it's dangerous. I mean, you might have 20-20 vision, but if you're in the darkness, you can't see where you're going. Jesus used the idea of darkness to describe the spiritual state of the world we live in. We might have our eyes open, we might see the world around us, but without a knowledge of God, the God who made us, then we walk in darkness. It's no wonder then, of course, that Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. If you know Jesus, you know God. And you walk in the light rather than the darkness. Some of you are closely following along in this sermon series by reading the upcoming passage. And by the way, I highly recommend that. You can always find the listing of the upcoming sermons on the back of the bulletin. And out of all the Sundays that we gather, this week there's actually a mistake on the back. (laughs) So uh, we are not going to start in on a series of lamentations next week. That'll be the following week. But next week, uh, one of the elders in our church, Nissen Matthew, who is going to preach in India this week, is going to preach that sermon to us on the mission. What is the mission of the church? So you'll be benefited if you read in Matthew chapter 28. Read Matthew chapter 28 before you come. But I recommend that you read ahead any time that you're going to come and join us for the services here Because it allows you to be more familiar with the passage. You'll better be able to learn from the sermon. And even better, you'll come, I pray, with an anticipation that God is going to speak to you through His Word. Well, if you were following closely last week and you anticipated reading this week, you might not have looked at the back of the bulletin and you just kept reading into the beginning of chapter 8 of John. But that's not what I'm going to preach this afternoon. I'm not going to preach this section because, as you probably note in your Bible, it's probably marked off, maybe with thick brackets around it. Maybe it's written in a different 
typeface or it's italicized perhaps. Those verses, the very last verse of chapter 7, 53 I believe it is, and through verse 11 of chapter 8. This is a famous account of Jesus having a woman who was caught in adultery brought to him and how he dealt with her and how he dealt with the crowd who brought her to him. It's an amazing passage. But this account is not contained in the earliest manuscripts of the book of John that we have. In addition, none of the earliest church fathers or church theologians comment on it as if it were a part of John's original gospel. Some of the later manuscripts, which do include this story, actually place it at different places in the gospel of John. And furthermore, another reason to doubt that it was originally a part of John's gospel is that the vocabulary in these 11 verses, 12 verses, I guess, are that they're very different from the rest of the gospel. In fact, it sounds much more like the author Luke rather than John. But it is included in your Bible. It is included in your Bible, and that is a reason to read it and know it. In fact, most scholars agree that they believe that it is a true story of something that happened to Jesus in his ministry, even though most of them believe that it doesn't belong in John's gospel, at least not here in this place. So I commend the story to you, but it interrupts the flow of what's happening when we look at chapter 7 and 8 together, which was everything that happened to Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And so we're going to push past it perhaps in the future. I'll preach on it at another time. But we're going to begin this afternoon at chapter 8, verse 12. Now remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem at this feast called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a yearly, week-long feast commanded by God for Israel to celebrate his rescue of them, the Israelites, from Egypt and to take them up to the Promised Land. And it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths because they lived in shelters or booths that they put together with palm branches and other materials that they had in the desert. So these Jews of Jesus' day were meant to remember what it was like for their ancestors in their rescue. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verse 12. And I want you to follow along with me as I read to verse 30. 8, 12 to verse 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sleep sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing in my, on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this scripture is your word to us today. And we pray, Lord, that the words of this passage will not fall to the ground, but will go out and accomplish all that you intend for them to accomplish in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Lord, I pray the same thing for this sermon. I pray that it would be true to your word and faithful to your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I think that John recorded these conversations in this particular episode in Jesus' ministry because he wanted to convince us that Jesus is the light in a dark world who saves us from sin. Jesus is the light in a dark world who saves us from sin. There's two points in the sermon this afternoon. You might be helped to write them down. Just two. Light that leads in darkness and belief that saves from sin. Light that leads in darkness and belief that saves from sin. In the last verses of chapter 7, Jesus stood up on the last day of the feast and he declared, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, there was, as I mentioned last week, a water-drawing ritual that would have happened every day of the feast, and especially on the last day of the feast, 
it was in remembrance of how God had miraculously provided water for the Israelites as he led them through the desert up to the promised land. Jesus was promising that whoever believed in him would receive the gift of the Spirit of God who would sanctify them from their sin, cleanse them from their sin. In other words, cause a river of living water to issue forth from them constantly because of the Spirit's presence in them. He, in fact, he was saying, was the fulfillment of what the feast was celebrating. Now, still at the feast, he speaks again about his unique identity. And here in our passage, he first claims to be the light that leads to darkness, or leads in darkness, rather. Light that leads in darkness. And we see that in verses 12 through 20. This same Feast of Booths also featured a lamp lighting ceremony. It took place in the temple every evening. Lamp stands would be set up in one of the courts of the temple. It's likely the court of the women, is what that court was called. Large lamps would be set up there in the evening, and there would be singing and dancing, celebrating God's rescue, and specifically how God had led them through the desert at night in a pillar of fire. That's how they knew where to go in the midst of the night. Exodus 13, 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Of course, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know that Exodus isn't the only place where God is associated with light. The first thing that God did when he created the universe was say, let there be light. And there was light. Light in the darkness. Moses' face shone so brightly from being in God's presence on the mountain of God, as recorded in Exodus, that when he came down to speak to the Israelites, they were frightened of him. And so he kept a veil over his face. Maybe you remember this verse from the many places in the Psalms that speak of God being light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or Psalm 139, 12 says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Of course, there's verse 6 in that section of Isaiah 42 that Hannah read to us earlier in the service about these promises that God would send a Messiah and he would be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations, a light for the Gentiles, a light for people like us. That was promised in the Old Testament. The Messiah wouldn't just be for the Jews. And we could go on and on and on and find all kinds of places in the Old Testament where God is associated with light. Jesus is making the boldest of claims here. He's making a bold claim about his identity. The world is dark with sin, but I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness like everyone else. Jesus promises to be the light of life to whoever follows him. 
This is the second of Jesus' famous I am statements in the book of John. Jesus has already claimed to be the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life in chapter 7, 6 rather, excuse me. And now he's declaring himself to be the light of the world. Jesus stands out among all the leading figures of every other religion as someone who doesn't point beyond himself to some source of truth, but instead he points to himself. He's not saying, come to me and I'll lead you to the bread of life. He's not saying, follow me and you'll eventually discover light in the darkness. No, Jesus is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. I sat down with Param Singh this week for an elder chat. I don't know if you've had a chance to meet Param. I was sitting down with him for this chat, which we have for, with every person who comes through our Discovering Covenant Hope class and wants to become a member in the church. And in that conversation, what we ask really are two main questions. How did you come to faith in Christ? And can you briefly explain the good news of the gospel? And it is the greatest of privileges, I want to tell you, to be an elder in the church and to get to have those kinds of conversations with everyone. In fact, you should go and find Param and ask him to tell you his story himself. It's so encouraging. He comes from a Sikh background, and he told me that as a young man, he had a deep concern about what would happen to him after death. And when his parents told him what they believed as Sikhs, he said, well, I want to know why I should believe it. And they said, we believe it because it was handed down to us. And he said, well, I need a better reason than that. A friend of his in his home state of West Bengal was a Christian and told him about Christ, and so he began to investigate Christianity. He got his hands on a Bible, and one of the things that struck him was how self-focused Jesus' claims were. That stood out as different. Who was this man who lived 2,000 years ago from some remote northern area of Israel who made such declarations about himself? He told me that John 3.16 stood out to him. He kept puzzling over John 3.16. And then when he heard the gospel explained in light of the cross, it all made sense. It all made sense, finally, that faith in Jesus himself was the way to be rescued from death. When a person goes through life cut off from a relationship with God because of their sin, they are walking in spiritual darkness. You may know what career you want to pursue. You may know what goals you want to achieve in your life. You may know what kind of experiences you want to have. But you don't really understand yourself and the world. How can you if you don't know the one who made you and the one who made everything that is? And worst of all, you don't know what's going to happen when you die. Of course, every religion puts forth theories 
about what happens when you die, but their theories. On the other hand, if you follow Jesus, and by follow, Jesus means believe in Him and live for Him and trust in Him, then you will have Jesus as your Savior and your guide. He will illuminate your next steps for you. He will be your guiding light. He will guide you to know what is wise and what's foolish. And His light will be life to you. In other words, His light is more than just guidance. Being in a relationship with Him through faith in Him will supply you with life. Life that's eternal. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. He's saying that Jesus and the scriptures of Jesus explain to him better than any other religious faith how life works and why this world is the way it is and why he is the way he is. And why you and I are the way we are. You know, one of the characteristics that walking in the light brings about is that it exposes our sin. Jesus is going to talk about sin that men have in the next part of our passage here. And so that's a characteristic of Christians. In a sense, we've spiritually come out of the darkness and we've let the light of Jesus and His holiness and purity and righteousness shine into our lives and we have confessed before Him. We have sin. I have sin. I have been in rebellion to you, Lord Jesus. In big ways and in little ways, but every way counts. And so that's a, characteristics, uh, a characteristic of Christians. We admit our sin. You'll frequently hear in our services a prayer of confession. We're not just being morbid. We're saying and admitting before God who we really are. It is an act of us standing in the light of Christ to come together and confess our sin. If you're a Christian, you're not afraid of confessing your sin. You're not afraid of confessing because you know that this Jesus is so merciful. If you walk in the light of the Lord Jesus, you will begin to understand that your purpose is to bring glory and honor to Him in your life. It will help you understand how every other aspect of your life, your work, recreation, Everything, your money, your relationships, all of them fit together to be one orchestra of worship to Him. And what about death? When you walk in the light, though you may die in the body, if Jesus doesn't come back first, you will have eternal life with Him that cannot be taken away from you. Jesus was telling the crowd at the Feast of Booths that he was God when he stood up among them and said that he was the light of the world. But they didn't understand. They didn't understand 
They didn't believe him. And so they argue that his testimony about himself is not true. (laughs) They're thinking back, of course, to the law, Deuteronomy 19.15, where it says that two witnesses are required to establish the truthfulness of someone's testimony in a court setting. They've spoken to Jesus with this line of reasoning before. But Jesus presses back, telling them that even if he testifies about himself, his testimony is true. They're basing their judgment of him, he tells them, on human standards. Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. It's right there in verse 15. It's like these Pharisees are trying to measure a straight line with a crooked measuring stick. You can't judge God by sinful human standards. And that's what they're trying to do. Furthermore, Jesus argues that he makes no judgment on his own, but judges in unison with the Father. He says, I and the Father judge together. And here, along with many other places in the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus revealing or pulling back the curtain on some of the internal relationship between the Son, and the Father, and ultimately, as well, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. I'm going to tell you about what he's talking about here. He's saying that the works of each person in the Trinity, he and the Father, are undivided. They are in unison. They're inseparable. That's one of the important doctrines when we study Scripture that we come to an understanding the Trinity the inseparability of all the actions of the Trinity in the world. Let me read you a quote from a professor called Scott Swain in his book on the Trinity. He puts it best. He says, The external works of the triune God are indivisible. All of God's works, from creation to consummation, that means when Jesus comes back and There's a new heavens and a new earth. All of those works are of the three persons enacting one divine power, ordered by one divine wisdom, expressing one divine goodness, and manifesting one divine glory. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, we'll find out later on in the book of John, are always acting together. One thing that Jesus goes on to tell them here as well is that not only is he his own witness, the first witness, but his father is a second witness of him. The father bears witness about him because the father sent him. Jesus is arguing back that he has the authority to make declarations like, I am the light of the world. But they can only think in earthly human terms. And so they demand of him, where is your father? I mean, it's like they're saying, go get your father because we want to interrogate him. But Jesus makes it clear they don't know him and they don't know his father. You see it there in the second half of verse 19. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Do you want to know God? Know Jesus. 
Do you want to follow God? Follow Jesus. Do you want to believe in God? Believe in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the pure, clear, complete revelation of God the Father. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness. He's fully God and fully man. He's the God Son. If you've ever asked God, please reveal yourself to me, your answer is Jesus. Now in verse 20, John tells us that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury, which was a part of the temple, and that he still wasn't arrested, even though the Pharisees had ordered it. And it tells us once again, as it has before, his hour had not yet come. The time for him to go to the cross had not yet arrived. God is in control. Jesus was in control of everything that was happening. Mercifully, there was still more preaching and more revelation that Jesus had to show to these Jews, but it wouldn't go on forever. And so Jesus returns to a message of warning combined with the offer of hope that only he can save them from their sin. That's the second point this afternoon, belief that saves from sin. And we see it there in verses 21 through 30. Verse 21 begins with the phrase, so he said to them again. Now I'm sure you've noticed that Jesus frequently repeats himself in his teaching, but he's always adding a little bit more clarity, a little bit more revelation when he repeats what he's said before. Earlier in the Feast of Booths, Jesus told the Pharisees and the crowds, I will be with you a little bit longer, but then I'm going back to my Father. You will seek me and you will not find me. He said that in chapter 7. But now he drives home that point again. Everyone who seeks will not find God. And we spoke about that last week in the sermon. It's spiritually dangerous to think that you can go on looking for God when you want and somehow gain salvation and eternal life at the time of your choosing. One movement that became popular among churches in the West during the 1990s was the seeker-sensitive movement. It's got this word, seek, here in this passage. Jesus is speaking about seeking and not finding. And during this movement, which I myself got caught up in, churches began to plan their services from beginning to end only and solely to speak to non-Christians. It was like every church service was purely and only an evangelistic service. Now, it was, it was a wonderful desire, of course, to see people who are not Christians meet Jesus, come to faith in Christ. And when I was involved in this movement, we did see many people become Christians. I want that. We want that here at Covenant Hope Church. I'm 
wanting to share the gospel every week and invite people into a relationship with Jesus. I hope you're doing that throughout the week, praying for those opportunities. But Jesus' words here should caution us about seeking or about the people that we would label as seekers. All people who seem to be seeking are not truly seeking God. Some seekers will find Christ a Savior, and other seekers will not. Jeremiah 29, 13, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that's the key. Only God knows who is a true seeker. We should be cautious about declaring who is truly seeking God. The Pharisees that Jesus is speaking with, they're asking questions, aren't they? But they're not seeking with all their hearts. They're stubbornly holding on to their blind unbelief in Christ. And if you're here to learn more about Christianity, that is a fantastic thing. This is a great place to learn about the Christian faith and about Christ himself. But let me ask you a question. Are you willing to believe? All people who seem to seek are not true seekers. Here Jesus tells these Pharisees what the consequences will be for remaining hardened in their unbelief of him. The consequences are that they will die in their sin. And they won't be able to go with him to the Father. And he repeats that idea two more times in verses 23 and then 24. He's from above, they're from below. He's from heaven, sent from the Father. They are of the world. He's not of the world. The worst thing that can happen to a person is to die in their sin. Death, in fact, is a result of sin. We die because we sin. And that was true from the very beginning of time when God created Adam and Eve. In the garden, in Genesis 2, God gave a command to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they did eat of it, and they did die. They immediately died spiritually, and so they eventually died physically. If sin had not entered into the world, then we would be forever stained, sustained by God through the tree of life, that tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. But physical death isn't the worst thing that can happen to us. Do you have a fear of death? It's not uncommon. Do you wonder what's going to happen when you die? What's far worse than physical death itself, though, is the judgment that follows physical death. The scriptures speak about it in the book of Revelation as the second death. The second death. If we die in our sin and rebellion against God, then we will be judged to deserve the wrath of God eternally. 
we will be put in hell. And there we will experience the judgment of God in an ongoing, never-ending way. No other problems in your life can compare to this horrifying prospect. Nothing. The prospect of dying in our sin is the great dilemma that mankind has faced since the beginning of time. It's like each one of us is driving 200 kilometers an hour toward the edge of a sheer cliff and we can't stop. We won't stop. Certainly not for God. But there is hope found in seven of Jesus' words in the midst of this warning. Look at the end of verse 24. Unless you believe that I am he. Unless. Back up in verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And here again, he uses that phrase, I am, unless you believe that I am he. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he told Moses to tell the people that I am has sent me to you. Jesus' use of this phrase, I am, tells us that he's making a claim to be divine. And so in verse 24, he's saying essentially, unless you believe that I'm God the Son, you will die in your sin. The way to escape dying in your sins is to believe that he is the Son of God in the flesh and to follow him, to walk in the light. The Pharisees respond to him with prideful indignation. In verse 25, they demand, who are you? Of course, the, the tone of their question is more like, who do you think you are to say these things? He says, I'm who I've claimed to be from the beginning of my ministry. But they continue in their unbelief, and so they don't understand. Once again, we see that they don't understand because they don't believe. Are you waiting to understand everything in the Bible? Every question you have before you decide to follow Jesus, before you decide to trust in him, oh friend, don't wait. You must only understand that Jesus is God in human flesh and that he came to save people by dying on the cross. Jesus goes on right there in this conversation with these Pharisees to reveal what event would demonstrate that he is, in fact, God the Son. In verse 28, he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. The lifting up that Jesus is speaking about refers both to His crucifixion on the cross and His exaltation by the Father to His right hand at His throne in heaven. Jesus rose from the grave and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father glorified because he went to the cross. Jesus both lifted up on the cross and exalted as the Lord and King of all at the right hand of God the Father is the way that he saves us from dying in our sin. And that is at the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. God is holy and he's right to judge our sin. We all sin, and one day we'll stand before God. 
And we would all face eternal judgment if Jesus had not gone to the cross. But on the cross, Jesus was receiving the judgment that we deserved for our sins. Your sins, if you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, your sins were punished 2,000 years ago. It's done. In love, he substituted himself to receive our judgment. And God the Father rewarded him with resurrection through the Spirit and the glory that he had with the Father from eternity past. Whoever believes in him, whoever follows him, that person's sins are counted as paid for. That person walks in a dark world by the light of their Savior, Jesus. They share in his eternal life because they're united with him through faith. The good news of the gospel is not about doing good things so that God will forgive you. It's about trusting in Jesus who did the only thing that could possibly save us from dying in our sin. He did it. He was lifted up on the cross and he's been lifted up to the throne of God. These Pharisees will one day no longer be confused about who Jesus is. The question is, will it be before they die or after they die? The book of Acts tells us that many of the priests and Pharisees eventually believed after they'd seen Jesus crucified and heard the reports of his resurrection. In fact, John tells us in verse 30 that many believed in him as he spoke these very words at the Feast of Booths. But some died in their sin, as many do still today. They will also see him lifted up on the throne. And he will be their judge, but not their savior. If you're not sure what's going to happen to you when you die, this is part of the central message of the Bible. When you die, you will stand before Christ, the judge of everyone. And the grand question will be, did you die in your sin or did you die believing in Christ? Did you continue to walk in darkness during your life or did you follow the light of the world who came into the world to graciously grant us the light of life? Unless you believe that he is the Christ, you will die in your sins. Oh, friend, trust him now. Give your life to him today. Tell him right now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this isn't just a message for those who haven't trusted in Christ yet. You have the light of the world in your life. Your sins were paid for when the Son of Man was lifted up. You have no reason to fear death. You have only reason to have great hope. You were seeking him when you became a Christian because the Father was drawing you to Jesus and you found him. You trusted in him. Oh, keep doing it. Keep reaffirming it day in and day out. Our great destiny is that we will get to go where Jesus has gone. We will get to go into the very presence of God the Father. When Christ comes to judge, your name will be found written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, what a glorious truth, friend. What a glorious truth, Christian. 
Life in the new heavens and the new earth is also described by the Apostle John in Revelation 21. He says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The darkness will have passed away. And we will live in the new Jerusalem by the light of the world, our Lord Jesus. He goes on to say in that next to last chapter in the Bible, the city that is, the new Jerusalem does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. What a glorious future we have. Let's turn to him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending Jesus, the light of the world, into our darkness. We thank you that our sins have been exposed, and rather than be judged for them, they've been forgiven. And so we have courage to confess our sins now and to walk in the light. We praise you that you drew us to him and gave us the gift of repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that you do that more and for more and more people in this land and throughout the entire world. It's in Christ's name we pray.